reaching as far afield as Australasia, the New Zealand Herald reported on May the 23rd, 1931, the London Ghost Club, dining with the dead, secrets of 50 years. If one were in a certain street in the West End of London on a certain evening every month, he would see between 30 and 40 prominent men, doctors, barristers, businessmen, going to a fashionable restaurant to have dinner and to gloat over eerie and fantastic stories of ghosts. No one with associates with these men in ordinary life ever knows what goes on in the private dining room in this restaurant on the first Wednesday of every month. The diners leave their everyday personalities outside and for several hours abandon themselves to a psychic orgy. They call themselves the Ghost Club. For 50 years they've been in existence and no one has yet revealed anything of the strange and carefully guarded proceedings. They are under an oath of secrecy not to divulge what transpires at these dinners. In the quiet of this private dining room, many a tale too gruesome for publication is told. And these are all taken down by the secretary with the solemnity of a coroner presiding over his court. The rules forbid publication of the stories. They are all stored away, many volumes of them, in a house in Kensington. The rules of the Ghost Club are as such. 1. That the club be called the Ghost Club. 2. That it meet, as a rule, on the first Wednesday of such months as may, from time to time, be decided in accordance with general convenience, provided that the November meeting shall take place on All Souls' Day, on whatever day of the week that may happen to fall. 3. That it be the purpose of the club to unite minds that are directed to the study of psychical subjects, its proceedings being regarded as strictly private and confidential among its members. Well, the Ghost Club is still in existence today, though its members do not quite reach the heady heights of former members such as Charles Dickens and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The Ghost Club is the oldest parapsychological organisation in the world, established in 1862. But according to the club themselves, quote, it has its roots in Cambridge University where, in 1855, fellows at Trinity College began to discuss ghosts and psychic phenomenon. It launched officially in London in 1862 by Alaric Alfred Watts and his friend William Stainton Moses. At the height of the burgeoning spiritualist movement in the Victorian 1800s, seances and other experiments to attempt to contact the dead had become hugely popular, and it was at this time that the world's oldest and most esteemed, yet little heard of club, the Ghost Club, was formed. The club had some of the most famous literary and cultural figures of the time, and several sirs and lords. It was an all-male club, and perhaps even termed a secret society. Members call each other Brother Ghost, and on every All Souls Day, the names of all members, both dead and alive, are read out. The Ghost Club is still going strong to this day, and members never leave. Well, technically they can't. After death, members are still considered to be members. By joining the club, they would remain ghosts in the afterlife, the club members believed. Old members included famous World War II poets Sigrid Sassoon and William B. Yeats, and several Nobel Prize winners. Chemist Sir William Crookes was a member, and he used his laboratory to test the levels of psychic force of mediums. Ernest Wallace Buge, the curator of the Egyptian artefact rooms at the British Museum was also a member. The archives of the handwritten notes of every meeting of the Ghost Club were first kept at the British Library, then moved to be stored at Cambridge University Library. 
Roger Luckhurst for Oxford University Press says, The most intriguing member for me, Thomas Douglas Murray, a society gentleman who was known to have been cursed by a mummy he purchased a coffin lid of, a malignant priestess of Amin Ra in his youth. He purchased the lid in Luxor, then promptly shot his own arm off in a hunting accident. Once installed in the British Museum as catalogue number 22542, it allegedly began a career of malicious revenge on spectators who gawked too hard. Murray told his story to the Ghost Club several times in the 1890s. The club would undertake practical investigations of all paranormal phenomena. In the 1970s, women were allowed admittance. Member Harry Price, famous ghost investigator, made it clear that with the entrance of women members, this was not to be considered a spiritualist church, but rather a group of sceptical inquirers and investigators who gathered together to carry out paranormal investigations, as well as holding dining evenings with after-dinner speakers. In Charles Dickens' day, Dickens warned that its members must approach each supposed case of a haunting with the greatest circumspection and the utmost care. Nothing in them, he said, must be taken for granted, and every detail proved by direct and clear evidence before it can be received. It was not to be taken lightly, nor frivolously, nor without scepticism and inquiry, he believed. And as the Paris Review points out, Dickens wrote in a letter to William Howitt, quote, My mind is perfectly unprejudiced and impressible on a subject. I do not in the least pretend that such things are not, but I have not yet met with any ghost story that was proved to me or that had not the noticeable peculiarity in it. The review continues, W.B. Yeats would become involved in the club. He was first invited as a guest, and he demonstrated the depth of his arcane knowledge by giving a speech on fairy beliefs, which he believed were simply spiritism happening not around tables, but in the fields. Another member of the Ghost Club was Charles Babbage, a technological genius who apparently invented the first computer 150 years ago. He wrote of his time in the Ghost Club in his biography, Passages from the Life of a Philosopher. He said, whilst I was an undergraduate, my chief and choicest consisted of some ten or dozen friends who usually breakfasted with me every Sunday after chapel. We discussed all knowledgeable and many unknowable things. At one time, we resolved ourselves into a Ghost Club and proceeded to collect evidence and entered into a considerable correspondence upon the subject. Some of this was both interesting and instructive, he said. Amusingly, though, this was apparently not the only club he formed. He writes, at another time we resolved ourselves into a club which we called the Extractors. Its rules were as follows. First, every member shall communicate his address to the secretary once in six months. Second, if this communication is delayed beyond 12 months, it shall be taken for granted that his relatives had shut him up as insane. He means shut him up in a lunatic asylum. Third, every effort, legal and illegal, shall be made to get him out of the madhouse. Fourth, every candidate for admission as a member shall produce six certificates. Three, that he is sane, and three others, that he is insane. Well, it appears that in Babbage's case, he had been fascinated by the paranormal and the occult since boyhood. As a child aged ten, he was sent away to live with a vicar who ran a boarding school in Devonshire, where the climate might better suit his health. 
and he reveals the occasion that he tried to summon the devil while still just a child. He writes, Relations of ghost stories often circulate amongst children. Of course, I share the belief of my comrades, but still have some doubts of the existence of these personages. After all, it might be a doubtful point whether a ghost or devil ever really existed. I gathered all the information I could on the subject from the other boys and was soon informed that there was a peculiar process by which the devil might be raised and become personally visible. My curiosity at length overbalanced my fears and I resolved to attempt to raise the devil. I went one evening toward dusk up into a deserted garret. Having closed the door, I proceeded to cut my finger and draw a circle on the floor with the blood which flowed from the incision. I then placed myself in the centre of the circle and read the Lord's Prayer backwards. This I accomplished at first with some trepidation and in great fear. However, he writes, after waiting some time for my expected but dreaded visitor, I in some degree recovered my self-possession and, leaving my circle of incantation, I gradually opened the door. And he left no more enlightened than before having received no such visitation from the devil presumably relieved, but rather deflated too. Alex Haley, curator at the British Library, uncovered a report in the archives at the library of a ghost experience recorded by one of the members of the Ghost Club. And he's written that a brief history of the club was written by Alfred J. Nicholl, member, who notes that the club was founded expressly so that persons who might object to any general publication of their experiences might be encouraged to relate them at the club in the strictest of confidence. The curator says that the article containing supporting material referred to in the minutes of the club has a number of pages regarding visitations made by the spirit of Terrace to Ghost Club member Leonard Francis and excerpts from Francis' diary, written up in the hand of Ghost B. Nickel, that is, Ghost Club member, because they refer to each other as Brother Ghost, Nickel, and describes apparitions occurring on the 30th of December 1926, and subsequently on the 27th of January 1927. In Nickel's first apparition, this ghost delivered a terse message, it said, I am William Lewin. I was stabbed at the Adelphi Theatre. I cannot rest. Well, Brother Nichols' notes read, he looked about 43 to 45 years of age. That is the ghost. He seemed to be clean shaven and his face was very white. Then all vanished. I don't know how to properly spell the name. He pronounced it Lewin, with the accent on the first syllable. I, at once, went upstairs to Flatty and told IBN, who is another member of the Ghost Club, who at my dictation wrote down this experience while it was still fresh in my memory. Well, brothers Nicol and Francis reported the apparition at the 400th meeting of the Ghost Club, and apparently fellow member, brother R.H. Saunders, agreed to investigate further. So the report continues, notes in the field dated 8th and 11th January describes visits made by Saunders to a medium in order to consult with the spirit world about the apparition. Saunders had several questions for the manifesting spirit, asking whether murder victims felt distress in the life beyond and whether this would account for the appearance of Lewin's spirit. On the second visit, the spirit reportedly confirmed to Saunders that the Lewin who appeared had been known as Terrace and had been murdered outside the Adelphi. William Terrace was the stage name of a famous English actor who was legally named William Charles James Lewin. 
In his day, he was very popular and best known for his swashbuckling roles playing characters like Robin Hood. He was actually murdered outside the Adelphi Theatre in London in 1897, 40 years prior to this report by Ghost Club member Brother Francis. He was killed by the actor Richard Archer Prince, who, as a result, was sent to Broadmoor Asylum for the Insane. The funeral for Terrace saw the London streets lined by crowds of up to 50,000 people. He was that popular. Well, the curator at the British Library continues that the report file with details of corresponding minute book describes Francis subsequently made a trip to Westminster Cathedral to pray for the spirit of Lewin on January the 26th and the following day was visited by the spirit of Lewin who, quote, faintly snarled and vanished at once. Well, the curator says he hasn't been able to find any further references to Lewin or Terrace, so presumably that was the ghost's last appearance. Andrew Green, or Brother Green, was also a member. As a teenager in 1944, Andrew Green had accompanied his father to an empty house in West London that his father needed to inspect for his job as a housing officer. When Andrew reached a set of stairs inside the house that led up to a tower, he felt as though there were invisible hands on his back, pushing him up. On reaching the top of the stairs, he heard a deep voice in his head, telling him the garden was only a few inches below him, and that he wouldn't hurt himself if he jumped. Andrew was only made aware of the deadly height of the drop when his father suddenly appeared, grabbed hold of him and pulled him back from the edge. Both of them were very confused and disturbed by this incident, and his father asked a friend, who was a policeman, to look into the history of the house. To their shock, the policeman discovered that there had been 20 suicides reported at that house, all of which involved the person throwing themselves off the tower, where Andrew had been standing, when he'd heard that voice telling him to jump. So perturbed by this strange and rather dangerous experience was Green, that he went on to dedicate his life to studying the paranormal. From later archives of the Ghost Club comes another investigation some of their members carried out in Scotland. The report is entitled Forfar Dispatch 119 Castle Street, Forfar, Saturday, June the 9th, 2012. Investigation into alleged hauntings report compiled by Derek Green, Scottish Area Coordinator of the Ghost Club. Twelve members were present. It was a nighttime investigation. The property is the location for the Forfar Dispatch newspaper offices and a building that is over 100 years old. The report says, since the building has become the Forfar Dispatch, Staff and reporters have experienced a number of unexplained occurrences in this very old building. According to Ghost Club member Andy Granville, the evening before the investigation and on the journey up, the number 39 kept coming into my head, rather bizarrely. Around 5.45, the team walked around the premises of three floors. There were some stairs leading to the second floor. There was an open area as one walked from the stairs and two small rooms were directly ahead. Neither rooms were in use. Up the stairs to the second floor was the landing of the room on the right, where we were warned not to shut the door so we would not be able to open it again. The number on the door was 39. There was another room on this floor at the end of the landing that we visited in which I felt that the atmosphere was very heavy, seemingly full of foreboding. According to fellow member Brother Ghost Barry McCracken, his experience was as follows. On the walk around before investigation, top floor, top of the stairs, a feeling of being dizzy, and then as I was the last to walk down, a loud auditory pssst or hiss in my left ear as I was descending. Another member, Marco Peaver's experience was as such. 
Marco noted that in the dark room on the first floor there was a dark shape moving around. And during the walk around, room 42 had something very uncomfortable in it. Memberlyn Robertson apparently felt the presence of a very glamorous female in her 60s laughing at something she was finding funny. At 1845, member Tracy noted, quote, I sense a man, black hair and goatee beard, brown suede tallish hat. I have a cold feeling on the back of my neck. I feel this man is from a few centuries ago. Lynn added that she felt there was an accident to the hand of one of the males and due to this he had suffered a mental illness and went around with a strange expression on his face. Lynn now was apparently feeling uncomfortable and she said all the other staff at the time were aware of him, this man, but kept away from him. She said that after the accident he could not work the machine and seemed to be allowed to just wander around. Another member, Stephanie, noticed she felt something dangling around her head and neck. At 18.45, a loud thud was heard from above. The group then decided to try and communicate with the spirits and instigated knocking to see if they got responses. Joan apparently kept knocking on the table and faint replies were heard coming from the room above. At 19.10, Marco noted that it was hard to keep his balance and someone in spirit was saying to him, you don't want to go up there. Then there were two very distinct knocks from the room above. Stephanie commented that she had a sore neck, as though she'd been scratched, but there were no visible marks. Lynn said she was sensing a vicious guard dog on chains. Stephanie, now uncomfortable, said she was being touched and felt her clothing being tugged. As Dave McIntyre was ascending the last few steps onto the top landing, he felt someone grabbed him just under the back of the knees. Nobody was on the stairs behind Dave. Dave did admit he got a bit of a fright and... Apparently, Sarah and Trudy both said they had seen the figure of a man who ended up seeming to dive out of the cupboard to the side of them. At the home of the original Ghost Club's formation, Cambridge University, there's a tale of a rather strange ghost. There was once a fellow by the name of Barrett, who was apparently quite an eccentric academic by all accounts. He was found dead in his room in a coffin, one arm over his face, in a death mask of a scream. Says the local newspaper, the Cambridge Independent, a former fellow known as Barrett was something of an oddball, as he kept a coffin in his rooms and was often noted to be both frightening and erratic in manner. He apparently lost all his money through bad luck, which always seemed to conspire against him, and then, one night, screams were heard in his lodgings. He was found dead in his coffin the next day. Former Cambridge student Anil Balan, now a principal lecturer in law, says on his blog, it was said afterwards that Barrett had not been laid there by human agency, but by the unknown and infernal forces with whom he had been conspiring during his cursed life. It was rumoured that he was haunted by dark forces, which accounted for bad luck, that caused him eventually to lose all his money. In brief reports in the archives of the Society for Psychical Research, says Balan, which were given to the Cambridge University Library, one finds a chilling explanation for Barrett's bizarre death. Secret papers discovered in Barrett's room after his death and concealed subsequently by the college authorities record his discovery of chalk marks, several years old, under the floorboards of his apartment. Careful study revealed that they showed a linguistic pattern, albeit not for any identifiable language, and hinted at some religious meaning. 
Eventually, Barrett was rewarded when he discovered a volume in the college's rare book room, which was embossed with similar signs. A tome which did not appear in the university's list of rare collections. It is clear, says Annal, that Barrett speculated that the markings were designed to unlock potential. Whether he ever made any progress in this regard, or whether his attempts to do so ultimately led to his untimely death, can only be speculated upon. (laughs) 